Good morning, church. Good morning, Ecclesia. Good morning, Kahal of the Redeemed. Good morning. So winter showed up for one day, and I'm not responsible for this. I did not pray for cold weather. I just want that spoken and known. That is probably a prayer you won't hear me pray anytime soon. My wife, however, would love for that to be the case. But I just want to start by being kind of transparent with you this morning, just in listening, trying to listen to the Holy Spirit during our season of worship. And I want to say this not just to to you, but I, I want to also not only welcome those who are uh, joining us online. I know today, especially locally, even some probably chose to stay home because of the uh, cold weather. But uh, what I'm about to say here applies to those of you who are at home as well. Because here there is a spirit of what I believe a spirit of intercession and a spirit of reality that the Lord is just, I just kind of sense that God wants us to have a season together today of being really honest with ourselves, being very open to his leading. I just felt like, you know, as we were worshiping, I was just thinking about that beautiful picture that we've been looking at in the Revelation where Yeshua, our great high priest, is walking among the lampstands, which are his churches, which are his people. And as he walks through, he's not only taking note of the spiritual condition of the congregation as a whole, how we manifest, how we represent his testimony. But he's also very intimately aware of what's going on in our own personal lives. We are a people living in a nation that is kind of imploding, that, you know, in seasons of elections, which should be a, a high point of who we are, have become low points. And some of that causes fear and frustration and anxiety. And yet it is in this realm, it is for this hour, God chose you to be his testimony now. And that matters. And he hasn't abandoned us as orphans. He, so I'm, my point is, he's here with us today. And I'm asking you to open your heart to him and allow him to speak. As we've been continuing our series on the lion's roar, a study from the book of Revelation, I like to keep going back to Amos chapter 3, verse 8, a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? The writer of Amos is, 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 is expressing that when God's word speaks, you can't be passive with it. It has to come into you. It has to transform you, and then it has to come out of you. Boy, does the lion have a lot to say to us in this book. And I'm mesmerized not only by what he says, but how he says it. You know, the end of the book is supposed to wrap things up and bring it all around. It's supposed to tie all the threads together so that we can look back at the story and not that the, as the story becomes clear, but we recognize how amazing the story has really been from the beginning. Before we pray, 
and begin our study of the seven letters of Yeshua, I want to read the words of the Lord spoken through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17.1. It's, it's, not, it's not a pleasant word. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart and upon the horns of their altar. As I already mentioned, the, the Kohen Haggadol, the great high priest, was also a great scribe. It was his responsibility to reveal the true condition of the people of Israel in the eyes of God. And God tells Jeremiah that Judah's sin has been inscribed on the tablets of their heart. Man, that's, that's kind of a terrifying thing to read. That's kind of a terrifying thing to hear. I don't want this, my sin inscribed upon my heart. But as tragic as that is, it is, the termino it is that terminology that sets the stage for one of the greatest promises that God has ever made to his people. And as I read it, I ask you to remember that our Messiah, our great high priest, is the scribe of our heart. And listen to this promise from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law, my Torah within them, and on their heart, I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The TV ad asks, what's in your wallet? The Lord's asking today, what's written on your heart? We pray with me. Abba, Father, I come to you, Bashem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Jesus the Christ, the Anointed One. And I ask, Messiah, that you would fulfill your word in our hearts and minds this day as you move among us by the presence of your Holy Spirit, just as you have promised and you have never failed to fulfill your word. Fulfill your word in us today, Father, even if it's painful, cause us to recognize that which is written within the tablets of our heart. Lord, we plead with you to write your righteousness into the story of our lives. We plead with you, Father, to pour out your Spirit's presence within us today, both congregationally and individually, as we turn and open our hearts to you, the great scribe of heaven. Write upon our hearts today and upon our minds the truth revealed in your word. I pray this in Yeshua's holy name and for his glory. Amen. So our great royal priest, Jesus, gave seven letters to be written and sent to seven churches in Asia. I, I, I'm a word nerd. I love the way, I love what the Lord says. I also love the way he says it. And if you start doing any kind of etymological research on the words that are used, uh, one of the things you'll come across is that the Hebrew word for to read is the same as the Hebrew word to call from the Hebrew kara. So basically, he sends seven letters to be read to the called out assemblies, the ecclesia. 
We are just, we are a called people and we are called not only to read the words. Remember the blessing in Revelation 1-3. We're called not only to read the words of the Revelation, we are called to heed them. And when I begin to heed them, when I begin to incorporate them in my life, guess what? I become them. I become a tablet upon which the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah can be read by others. And we're going to focus a lot on that today. These seven letters are best described as the word of the Lord for his people. This is the word of the Lord to the called out assemblies. And the message from the royal high priest is the same as that of Hebrews 8.1. Since we have such a high priest, the writer of Hebrews says, we have every reason to not fall away. Meaning, we, let me say that in the positive, we have every reason to expect victory. We have every reason to live in this world as victors and not victims, as the triumph and not the downtrodden. Why? Because we're so strong? No, because of who he is and the word that he has brought forth. Listen to what the Lord says through Jeremiah further on in Jeremiah 17 verse 13. Those who turn away on the earth will be written down. Because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Friends, please try to get a handle on this. What we see Jesus doing in chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation is exactly what we should expect to see and hear from the one who is the great royal eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the great scribe, and we had better pay attention to what he's writing and where he wants to write it. Because I don't want... My sin's written upon my heart. I don't want his heart went away. I want the words of victory and triumph to be written upon my heart. Amen? I mean, is that your testimony today? Because as his called out assembly, we are the end time revelation to be read in the last days. And I want to say this as clearly as I can. This book obviously applies to every generation of believers, but it specifically applies to a final generation upon whom the end of the ages has come, upon whom things, everything that every generation has struggled with in the past, it gets worse. Now, I don't know if that's us, but it sure kind of feels that way sometimes. It feels like we're edging closer I don't know when that generation, you know, if we're that specific generation, but I know we're already beginning to experience the birth pangs. I know we're already beginning to experience just in our nation, in our world, in our state, in our community, we're beginning to experience things that generations past did not experience in this nation. We are a called out assembly and we are, this is the, one of the th- point I'm trying to make is before we get into the rest of the book and all of the revelation of the false Messiah and the things the nations are doing, all, understand that the heart of Messiah is that you are the revelation that stands during whatever in that season or this season, we are a letter from him to the world. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. 
being manifested, please hear this, 2 Corinthians 3, 3, that you are a letter of Christ. Wow. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> you are a letter of the anointed one, the Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on the stone of, uh, but not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart. I mean, notice Paul's just carrying on what Jeremiah started. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit, fail to be even more with glory. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound to glory. Please understand that what I'm saying is I'm not trying to just burden you with, oh my gosh, I'm, everybody's paying attention. But I was a preacher's kid. And my mom used to say this to me and I hated it because she'd remind me I'm a preacher's kid and everybody was watching and I didn't like that. You know, I, I, everybody knew it was the elders and deacons' kids who were the trouble causers anyway. That was a joke. Not the preacher's kid. We just got sucked into all their chaos, and then we got blamed for it. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Um, I didn't want that. I didn't want that extra burden of responsibility of, of people watching me. But my mom told me, even as a child... I would come home, and I, I, I don't remember this, but I, I would tell her stories, and my mom would, would just talk about how amazed she was at how these adult teachers would confide in me and would say things to me, and I would come home, and I would tell my parents, and folks, all that is, I'm not bragging, I'm just saying that's the Spirit of God. People are reading our lives, and, and the question is, what are they reading when they read you? And I don't want to sound all metaphysical and new agey there, okay? So please don't write me letters. I'm talking in the context of what the Bible says. You and I are letters of the Messiah. Please let that sink in for a moment. People read you the same way they read Moses with one big difference. We minister with unveiled faces reflecting the glory and presence of the Lord, and we don't cover it up. You know, I, I found in ministry, especially doing ministry in Israel, I've shared this before. You know, a lot of times I don't get to go into a, a, a deep explanation about why I believe Yeshua is the Messiah. But you know what? His countenance, if I am sensitive, if I am focused, if I'm pressed into him, they recognize his countenance upon my face. We're supposed to minister. I used to get so mad, Lord, I can't, because I, I love the Jewish people and I want them to know the Messiah, but I get frustrated about that veil. Lord, I can't take down that veil. He said, it's not your job to take down that veil. Go read what I said. It is your job to minister with an unveiled face. Let my glory be the thing they see. Not what you know, but who I am. I'm saying all this because I'm asking you to consider your testimony. What, what did people read in your countenance this week? Oh, I had some good moments. 
I had some bad ones. I had some moments where I thought, I could have handled that better. I had some moments where I thought, hmm, that was a missed opportunity. Why didn't I say this? We are a testimony. Remember that word, that Hebrew word, idab, which means both a testimony and a congregation. We are the tabernacle of the testimony. And by the way, I want to say this, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to make anybody that's watching online feel bad because, and by the way, if you are watching online, tell us where you're, say hello to us, let us know where you're watching from. It encourages us to know you're there. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad if, they, if they're not close enough to be here with us today or anything like that. But I want to just be really honest and bold and I don't know, you can fire me if you want. Well, I actually, don't actually work here. But anyway, you can, you, know, you can do whatever you want to do. But the bottom line is this, if you're not a part of a congregation, you're not fulfilling the word of Christ. I, I, I couldn't believe how the, this movement, that there were people in the movement that, that fussed at each other so much, they finally came to the conclusion because they couldn't form a congregation where they didn't devour each other. It must be the Lord's will that we not have congregations. Poppycock! It's an ancient word. Look it up. Showing my age. My dad used to say things from the pulpit. I'm like, What? We don't have great words like this anymore. Balderdash. (laughs) I'd be like, Dad, that is so uncool. Balderdash, who says that? (laughs) He does. (laughs) And now I do. (laughs) Folks, you can't be a part of the body of Christ if you're unwilling to be a part of the body of Christ. And I'm just going to sidebar here. Uh Uh-oh. Uh, I know that the leadership, that, that their heart and my heart is not that this assembly simply be a Sabbath assembly. It is the heart of the leadership of HFF that this be a Sabbath family, this be a congregation, that this be a full service congregation that ministers to our children, that ministers to our elderly, that teaches the whole counsel of the word of God. And and at some point in time, the only way that we can even expand that ministry is that we have to invest in this body. And no one asked me to say this, okay? But righteousness is giving, And if you're receiving, you should be giving because that's what the body does. I'm asking you, my my nephew, I was at his church recently and he was preaching about things he was asking the congregation to do. And one of the things he simply said was, be here because we need each other. The collection of the body also strengthens us, and I'm way off my notes, but this is what's on my heart today, so I'm, I'm going to share it. We are the tabernacle of the testimony. We are the mishkan, which is the Hebrew word for tabernacle, which has the idea of the word to dwell. We are where the glory of the Messiah dwells within us. Why wouldn't you want to be with others who are filled with his spirit? Amen? He tabernacled among us so that he could pour forth the spirit to tabernacle within us so that we would be a testimony of the Messiah that people would read. And I'm asking you today, what is your testimony? Do you have a testimony of the Messiah written upon your heart? If you do, it will show in the glory of his countenance upon your face. So knowing all of that... It kind of makes perfect sense that our great scribe would send his prophetic word not only to the church, but about the church. 
because of the role we play in every generation, in tribulation, and in the tribulation, whenever that is, we are a testimony. That's why he starts with us. If we miss this, the rest of the revelation is worthless. Because it's not about what they're going to do. It's about who we are and what we're going to do and be. Amen? So last week we did a quick overview. Well, quick, haha. Um, we did an overview, anyway, of the seven aspects or the seven sections of these letters because they all kind of follow the same pattern. There are some things that are missing from some of them. But these seven are the stated address. He always starts with an address to the angel of the church and to the city of that church. The stated author, the statement of awareness. There's a statement of an acclamation where, where the Lord says something positive. There are some that don't get anything positive said. That's not a good deal. There's a statement of admonishment. And that's not a good deal. However, it's not a bad deal either because those whom he loves, he disciplines. If you're not receiving admonishment in your spirit, uh, well, you're either walking way ahead of where I'm at in the, in the game and praise the Lord for it, but normally most of us at some point in our life are going to need the admonishment of the Holy Spirit, the sifting of the Holy Spirit to get us back on track. Because look, it's so easy. While we are filled with the Spirit of God, we live in fallen flesh. And sometimes that flesh is a beast, Amen. It, it gets bossy, you know? Sometimes we need to be admonished. Some, that's followed by a, skull, a, skull, a call to spiritual attentiveness, which begs the question, are we listening? Him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you remember when Jesus came teaching parables? You know what the, one of the reasons he taught in parables? It exposed those who weren't listening. That was one of the purpose of the parables. It, it sifted. Followed by a covenant promise to the overcomers. So we're going to go to Revelation chapter 1 of the church about Ephesus. 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, sent ones, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. Uh, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, uh, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let me just tell you in advance, we're not going to get to every part of that, but we're going to focus heavily today on the parts of the testimony. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Let me simplify this. Thus says the Lord. I'm, I'm not sure you, you heard me. Thus 
says the Lord. Now, we are a movement that's been really good about that, jumping on that line, haven't we? And now we have a letter from the word of God made flesh. And he is speaking not just to physical Israel, but to everybody from every tribe, language, people, and nation who make up the Israel of God, who make up the called out assembly of the redeemed. And he is speaking to us, for us, about us. Thus says the Lord. Do you feel the weight of that? Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, this is the word of the Lord. And I I just want to stress that should matter to us. I mean, honestly... When the apostles came together and spoke in Acts 15, they brought forth the word of God on on some difficult subjects. And once they did that, end of discussion. When the Lord speaks, our only response can be, Amen. So be it. Thy will be done. As it is in heaven, may it be on earth. It's amazing how we can become so worried about people not listening to the word of the Lord given through Moses and pay so little attention to the word of God himself when he speaks directly to us, his called out appointed assembly, with whom he, within whom he has written his word. Are we keeping the words of Moses while ignoring the word of the Messiah? Are we as passionate about what Yeshua tells us to do as we are about what Moses was told to write and read before the people? Do we understand that once his word is written within us, we become the tablets of the testimony? Are we keeping Yeshua? Blessed is the one who reads and heeds the words of this prophecy. Are we Shomer Yeshua? Are we passionate about keeping Yeshua. Now you said, Brent, why do you keep, why are you so passionate about this? Because there was a whole movement of people that stopped being passionate about this. And it led us into a lot of heartache and hurt. But I'm talking about your testimony today. What do people read? What do they hear when they hear you? I've told the story about meeting a very sweet, young, messianic couple in another state who went out of their way to not tell me what they believed. They they went out of their way to, to, it's like they were afraid well, you know, we're, we're, we believe in the whole Bible. And I knew immediately, huh? Messianics. Where is Yeshua in our testimony? How is he not the first thing that we declare? Because he's the name above all names. The lion has roared, but sadly, instead of inspire, inspiring holy fear and awe, Sometimes within his own people, he just gets a bored yawn. And I'm not just talking about our movement. I'm talking about the body of Christ at large. You can go for months in some congregations and churches and never hear Jesus or Yeshua. You you just know nothing said about him at all. The lion has roared. Can people tell that? 
in my countenance and what's written on my heart. Listen, verse 2, to what he knows about them. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. Do you remember how John described himself in Revelation 1-9? He said, I'm your brother, I'm your fellow partaker, and then he uh, laid out three things. He said, I am your brother and partaker in the tribulation, the kingdom, and perseverance. Notice that that is exactly what Jesus sees and calls out in a compliment, an acclamation to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your work, I know your labor and toil, and I know your perseverance. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. Again, we're we're really just kind of being honest with ourselves. Well, let me just put it like this. How, how many of you want, the whole, you want Yeshua to acclaim you, to compliment you? I mean, I don't want to get to the pearly gates and have Yeshua go, yeah, all right, come in. Lord, you know, meh, meh. I want to hear him testify, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come on, amen. How many of you want that? I want a testimony that, that, that speaks to the heart of God because you don't get the compliment, you don't get the acclamation of God if you don't have the testimony of Yeshua. He says, first of all, he says, I know your labor and your toil. I'm, I'm going to take these uh, put them in the same order as John used them. He says, I know your labor and your toil. The Greek word here for labor or toil comes from the word kapos, which means to strike or be stricken. The word isn't talking about how hard the work is, but how much resistance and oppression occurs because of the work we're called to do for the Messiah. What is he talking about? I know your tribulation. I know that in this world, there is another force. There's another spirit that is working against you. That every time you think you've made three strides forward in someone's life, the enemy comes in and steals the word. I get that. You see, this is the testimony of of tribulation. But the testimony of tribulation in the life of a believer isn't about how bad it gets for us. It's about how good God is to us through and in the midst of it. Amen? That's the triumph of tribulation. The tribulation is simply a stage upon which the victory of God in our lives is first shown. And by the way, because we're Torah-loving people, let's remember the first sentence of the Torah. I am the Lord your God, the one spoken. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of of Egypt and slavery. That's the first commandment. That's the first thing that God says verbally and audibly to the people. I am the God who brought you out of Mitzrayim, and I've said it a million times in my life so far, that Mitzrayim, one of the translations, one of the definitions of the name of Egypt is tribulation. Do you realize the first thing that God says to his people from Mount Sinai is, I am the God who has victory over tribulation. That's his testimony. 
He says, that's why you should trust me because that's the first commandment. I'm the Lord who, God who brought you out of Egypt. Trust me. Have no other gods before me because I'm the one that rescued you. You see, for the very first thing that was spoken that we turn to as the first of the written commandments <laughs> is the testimony of triumph over tribulation. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that consistent in the word of God? Again, please understand the revelation is not showing us our defeat in tribulation, but the triumph of the saints over the tribulation. And this is our testimony, right? I mean, that's our testimony, isn't it? That because of the spirit of God that dwells within me, I look at this world differently. I respond to, to affliction. I respond to oppression. I respond differently because I have this perspective of triumph. That's my testimony, right? Well, can we at least admit that's what we want it to be? And sometimes we are good at it. And sometimes we're not. And yet he continues to love us. I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. But there is a sad reality that some will turn away when it gets difficult. And how do we know who they will be? Well, John 666 in the sixth chapter of John Jesus has fed 5,000 and then launched into a very difficult teaching about the necessity of consuming his blood and his flesh. Um, he didn't say to the masses, go and sell everything that you have and come follow me at that moment. He gave a very difficult teaching that, that you know, you must consume me. I must become a part of you. You know, metaphorically, he's, you know, he's actually using terminology that you can even find that the rabbis use later written in the Talmud. But for a whole group of people that were there, he, he hadn't just preached a sermon that you're going to starve and be hungry. He's just manifested the reality that if you trust me, I'll multiply what you need. But the teaching was hard. And John 6, 6, 6. And many turned and followed him no more. And according to Jeremiah... They were written down. That's their testimony. Now I call this to your attention because who is it that's going to fall away in tribulation or at the tribulation? It's those who cannot stomach his teaching. If you cannot stomach Messiah's teaching now, you will not survive a tribulation that goes after your stomach. I went in late yesterday afternoon to get some food for the weekend, a few things we needed, and I was stunned at what wasn't on the shelf. I've, I mean, partly because the, the, everybody freaked out, and it was like, you know, it's going to get cold in Oklahoma, so it's a blizzard, so everybody go stockpile. But there were places where the shelves were just empty. 
I never remember seeing that as a child. Does anybody remember seeing that in America as a child? I don't, at least not in the blessed areas that I lived. Maybe that was, I know there are parts of our nation that aren't blessed with that. But people don't just turn away because tribulation is physically hard. Sometimes they turn away because it's spiritually hard. The teaching of Yeshua requires, I've ministered to people that uh, I knew their, their real issue about not coming to the Messiah, not coming to Jesus, was simply because they knew that if they ever came to the place where they actually acknowledged who he was, the one through whom and by all by through him and by him all things that they would they, they were smart enough to know that if he is truly the God that he says he is then I owe my life my allegiance and my behavior to him and they just don't want to change. People in America don't really have a big issue with the Trinity or big theological issues. Most people are just in love with their sin, and they don't want to change. And the truth of the teaching of who Yeshua is, is a threat to them because it says, I don't get to be in charge of my stomach anymore. I have to start trusting him to be the word of life and the bread of life. You know, I always say people don't, people in the tribulation aren't going to take the mark because they can't, you know, they, they're, they're frustrated because they don't get to buy the iPhone 45 or whatever. That's my way of trying to avoid date setting, but <laughs> people take the mark because their stomach is their God. I want the Lord to say, well done. What do you want the Messiah to say about you? Jesus also says that he knows their work, and their deeds. The Hebrew context for work is acts of righteousness. Yeshua knows when you show love and only get hate in return. He knows when you give sacrificially and only get greed instead of gratitude. Give me more, more, more. Yeshua knows when you love as he is loved and you are despised as he was despised. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says that he knows. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Now, he's just given a statement about people who fell away. But he says, we're convinced of better things for you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Listen to this. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Did you hear that? I was getting a loud amen from the baby section, so let me read it again. And that's okay, by the way. That's a blessing. God is not unjust. Literally, God is not unrighteous. For God to not take notice of your work, your deeds of love, your service to the saints, your service to the church, for him to not take notice of that would be unrighteousness. It would be withholding from you what you should receive, a God who takes notice of you and loves you, and he is not unrighteous so as to withhold 
and act like he's not aware. And sometimes that's the very thing our carnal hearts want to accuse him of. Lord, are you paying attention? (laughs) Yeah, son, I was there before you. I was behind you. (laughs) I know the beginning. I pretty much know how this story is going to play out. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no other, no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope for both the sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil which Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, we have every reason to not fall away. Because our God is not unjust. And when he sees you performing acts of righteousness, now folks, I'm not talking about which holidays you keep. I'm talking about righteousness as a manifestation of how we treat one another. How we show mercy, how we give love, how we extend forgiveness. The writer of Hebrews says, let me tell you something that I know. And I I love this. He invokes the quintessential example to prove it. Abraham, our father. Abraham believed God, and it was what? Credited him as righteousness. Why? Because God is not unjust. When Abraham showed what he would give, God showed exactly what he would give. I will receive that as righteousness. That's what I'm looking for. God will not forget. And he's aware of our testimony. He knows our tribulation and our triumph over it. He knows our works of righteousness, and it will not go unnoticed. And Yeshua knows the perseverance of the saints. This is the same word used in Revelation 2, 2, and 3 is the same word that John used to describe his fellowship and brotherhood with us, the perseverance of the saints. My friends, that's our testimony. The triumph of the tribulation, the the work of righteousness, the kingdom of God, by the way, which the, the kingdom of God that we fellowship in, there's a reason for that. The kingdom of God is not just a future event. It's the manifestation of God's power within us. And let me tell you, there's only one way that the kingdom of God shows up in, in a person's life or in a congregation. It's when that congregation has a testimony of righteousness. And again, I'm not talking about all the do's and don'ts. I'm not talking about the holidays and... I, those can be a manifestation and expression of something we give to God and, and we do because we love him. But I'm talking about people. I, I'm talking about doing righteousness 
and kindness for one another. Man, you start doing that. Do you, you, you wonder why the missionaries come back and they tell these crazy, amazing stories of the power of God? And we're like, oh man, I wish, I wish I could experience it. I wonder why I'm not. The kingdom of God does not show up for selfishness. If you want a testimony of the power of God in your life, your life testimony has to be about doing the things that God has called us to do to bring the love of God to other people. It cannot be about, oh, I'm so righteous because we're not talking about those things. We're talking about how God uses us to be a love letter to people to reach their hearts. And he's not going to show up and manifest his power because a group of people get together and say, we're better than everybody else. We know more than everybody else. That's not our testimony. Paul talks about the power of righteousness in the gospel because it's the power of God. It changes people's life. I'm asking you this morning about your testimony. Who have you told about Yeshua? Whose broken heart have, have you reached out to? I, I was on Facebook, forgive me, and I was watching some of these reels. And, uh, you know, it's weird. That if, if, if you stop and you watch one of these reels, then you'll get a whole bunch more like them. So be careful what you stop on. Like suddenly I'm like, I don't care about the book of Enoch, but I stayed too long on one. And but I stayed on one where... Two people were in the screen, and the one on the bottom was talking, and the one on the top was identified as an atheist or a non-believer. And, and the courage of the person to say, listen, brother, I know you don't believe in God, but God believes in you, and I love you. And I just started watching these people speaking into people's lives. I'm wondering, when you go into a restaurant... Do you just go in to get fed, or do you go in thinking, you know what, there might be a divine appointment in here for me today? What would happen if I opened my eyes? I used to get so frustrated. We'd go to Israel, and we'd have all these divine appointments, and then we'd come back, and it'd just be... That's because I, every falafel stand I went into, every bus seat that I sat... I mean, I was like looking. I was like, God, do something. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you gonna do? I come home. I go to Taco Bueno. I'm like, shut up. Give me my burritos. I don't go into Bueno looking for divine appointments, but what if I did? What if I, what if I went to school, for those of you who go to school, and I saw each and every moment, each and every class, not just as an opportunity to receive what the teacher's giving, but to be focused on what God is doing, and then to get on board with him and do it. We're going to be in this book a long time. Let me just quickly just say that he also commends them for two other things. He commends them for not tolerating evil men and using discernment and testing those who claim to be prophets but are not. Evil men doesn't just, when we read that, the problem is our minds usually just go to gross sinners. Obvious, but these are people within the body. And he calls them evil men. 
And if you understand what the definition of evil is, you understand that evil, the good, is that which brings me to fulfillment in Christ. The thing that, that you know, God created, it was good, it was functioning in its purpose, and then when, you, when you're functioning in your purpose, that's good. When you get called outside of that, you step outside of that, that's evil. And there are people that will come into our lives, and they will speak things, and they will teach things, Sometimes even under the guise of teaching you the good, but in reality, they're teaching you the evil because they start teaching you to focus on them and not him. And we get drawn away because they decided this was the drum that we should bang the loudest. And pretty soon, evil men get us focused on things that aren't bringing us to the good. Does that make sense? They don't have to be gross sinners. They have to be people who are distracting us from the purpose that God has for us. Some are so brazen as to represent themselves as apostles. You know, it's interesting how the book of Revelation has things within it that there was a time, even in American life, you know, when we get to that passage that talks about, you know, the, the two witnesses lying in the street of Jerusalem and the whole world looks on, you know, 60, 70 years ago, I don't remember how long television, but before television, like, how's that going to happen? And then suddenly as time goes on, oh, that, okay. I mean, 30, 40 years ago, when I was starting out in ministry, I wasn't too worried about having to say, hey, brother, you're not an apostle. I didn't think I had, no one was, and now in this day and age, there's a whole movement right now of people taking on the title of apostle. Beware of people who clamor for titles. Amen? Now, I'm not saying that God can't appoint someone to be an apostle. That's his business, not mine. I'm just saying these people had a testimony of using discernment that just because someone tells you they're something doesn't make them that something. Just because they tell you they're a prophet, <laughs> test it. I know it's a crazy idea. Well, I noticed that everything you said didn't happen. And if you're an apostle, where's the power? Where's the testimony? You're going to tell me you're an apostle? You better be ready to prove it. Because that's a very loaded word. Jesus compliments them because they also hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were a group of people that started with Nicholas, one of the seven, first seven deacons, servants of the church who started teaching people that because you're saved by grace, it's okay to sin. You know, I used to read Romans 6.1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I used to think, well, who would be dumb enough to say that? The Nicolaitans. And when I was a teenager, no one was saying that. Now there's whole movements saying that. Once saved, always saved, so it doesn't matter. An entire network of ministries designed to help people out of sexual brokenness imploded and crumbled because somebody at the top started saying, well, if we're saved, once saved, always saved, then why can't homosexual people have a happy monogamous life with someone of the same sex? I mean, because after all, once saved, always saved. 
It's not theoretical anymore, is it? But Jesus applauds them. And I want to make this very clear. He applauds them for being discerning, not for being demeaning. Come on. He applauds them for being discerning, not being demeaning. These were, some of these people were brothers and sisters in Christ and, and maybe they went off straight and they, they need the rebuke, the admonishment of the Lord. The Lord loves them. But if they're not apostles, you have to tell the truth. Finally, he says this. But you have forsaken your first love. He says, repent and do the things you did at first, or else I will come and remove your lampstand. That's terrifying. When my dad was in Bible college, his home church in Rockford, Illinois, was doing a vacation Bible school. And you know how vacation Bible schools used to be in churches. I mean, everybody, every kid went. And Rockford, Illinois was beginning to change the area in which they lived. And people who didn't look like other people started attending. And my dad was talking to my mom, or his mother, my grandmother. And uh, an African-American family had brought their kids to vacation Bible school. And they closed, they shut VBS down. My dad said to my mom prophetically, the lampstand is gone. And that church is no more and shouldn't be. If we're going to be a testimony of the kingdom, we ought to look like the kingdom. And our testimony needs to be about love, but it also needs to be about discernment. And the moment in which we decide who we will love and who we will not love for whatever reason it may be, race, ethnicity, outrage. I mean, listen, the world makes it easy to not like them. And yet God says to love them. That's our testimony. That we would be a people that when they read us, they don't read condemnation. They read invitation to redemption. That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we manifest that love by loving everyone who is our neighbor as ourselves. I ask you today as we close. What's your testimony? And I ask you collectively, HFF, what will our testimony be as a congregation? Will, will we be a congregation of people that we accept because they look like us? Their background's the same as us? 
They're from the same areas that we're from. They're from the same economic strata that we're from. Or will we be a place of refuge where the testimony on every face is the goodness of God showing us who he is? Walk, therefore, in a manner worthy of your calling, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace.